This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about and scrutinized and criticized by none other than John Syracuse, whom you may know from his work at Ars Technica, or by me, Dan Benjamin. And uh, today, this is episode number five. What's our topic today, John? You picked two topics this time, and then well, made I, me pick. So you're trying to push the uh, onus on to me a bit, but I, I had no problem with that. I can narrow it down from two. I liked both topics so much that they, I, I got. I found myself getting kind of giddy about talking about both of them, either of them. And I, I think just I know which one you wanted more, so I picked the other one. <laughs> which which one did you think? Uh, I think you want the UI consistency one, but I uh, that's not my favorite, and I'm not sure how much I have to say on it right now. So I picked the other one. And what was the other one? The other one was Apple's hardware blind spots. Ah, okay. I act to be honest, I really don't know that I had a favorite either way, but I'm 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 thrilled to talk about that. And so, what does that mean, hardware blind spots? Uh, I, are we skipping the follow-up? Is this what you're saying? No. Oh, yeah. We got to do our follow-up. I'm sorry. No, I'm not saying that. Let's follow up. All right. I can try to rush through follow-up. There is backup-related follow-up here. Uh, I could push it off for another show if you want, or I could just go through the items in order. No. And, let's uh, let's do all the follow-up. We'll do it all. Do it all. We'll see how that goes. All yeah. right. So, uh, I think, was it last week or two weeks ago that we talked about Lion? Uh, I thought Lion was last week. Yeah, probably was. So there's a little follow-up on that. We were uh, discussing whether spaces... No, it was two weeks ago. Two we weeks ago, whether, yeah. Episode spaces n- would be in there. Number three, the mouse is not a finger. Right. Yeah. Um, and we said we talked about in the last show how they didn't show spaces in the uh, demo, but that doesn't mean it's not necessarily there. Well, uh, a couple of people sent me links to Apple's actual website where they have text on their Lion webpage that says... You know, Spaces is there, basically. Right. They're saying in the Mission Control thing, you know, thumbnails of your full-screen apps, dashboards, and even other spaces arranged in a unified view. So that's pretty much as explicit as you can get. Even though they've never shown it, and even though we have no idea how it works or what it looks like, the text on their page says that it has spaces. Not that things can't change, because, you know, there have been many things written on Apple's website about operating systems yet to be released that have turned out not to be true when the operating system was released. I think they had even a whole page where they were talking about ZFS. Do you remember that? Yeah, that yeah, that was depressing. The, yeah, I would have loved to have that. There have been a few other ones. I've forgotten them now, but all sorts of things have been on their page when they've doing the previews, you know, and then eventually uh, they just stopped talking about it and they released the actual operating system and those features aren't there and everyone forgets, including me. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up because Thank that's, you. that's some, some pretty good evidence. Um, some people were asking me about uh, my offhanded comment about audio quality last time. I think I was talking about the limits of human perception and how uh, when technology catches up to them, yeah. uh, this, this uh, innovation kind of stops in that area. Um, and I mentioned that you know, uh, 256 kilobit AACs or MP3s is pretty much good enough for most people and sure. but but audiophiles find it depressing and, and a lot of people want to know well you know can you even tell the difference if we if we did a double blind test of you listening to whatever audio source you chose and and a uh, an mp3 would you be able to tell and the answer is i probably wouldn't be able to i don't have a golden ear i'm not really an audiophile it's really just a, a question of general principles i, I don't know if I'm the only person who feels this way, but I like that audio quality was progressing and that felt like, it felt like progress to me. It felt like audio quality gets better during my life. When I'm a kid, there's vinyl and there's cassettes and briefly eight tracks. And, you know, we get CDs where the, the, the hard 22 kilohertz cutoff was a problem for some people and they started massively compressing the music. But in general, it's been a lumpy upward slope in audio quality. And then what was it like? Just before the dawn of the internet, they had Super Audio CD and DVD Audio duking it out for the next generation, oh, super yeah. high resolution format. Yeah. But then the internet came, and Napster and MP3, and <laughs> forget about Super Audio CD and DVD Audio. These things still exist, and you can buy them, but they're obviously way, way outside the mainstream. And so we kind of took, we derailed. We said, well, audio quality is pretty much good enough. Let's add more channels. So now we're up to like what is it, seven point one or whatever for surround sound. But other than that the actual audio quality itself is good enough. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think there's still headroom. And, and it bothers me because I, we know we have the technology for better audio, right? 
it's not like we don't have the tech for this. We even have a, a bunch of standards like Super Audio CD came out. DVD audio came out. It exists. You can buy them. Not that they're great formats or anything, or I'm particularly recommending them, but it was the, a next step in the journey. But we've just decided to skip them entirely, and not, we're not interested in them. And the, the thing that bothers me about them from a practical perspective is that even if you can't tell the difference, compressed lossy audio limits what you can do with it. Like, say you want to make uh, a video and cut together pieces from a bunch of different songs. If the best copy of the songs you have is a lossy compressed audio file that you got from iTunes or something, when you chop up pieces of that song and, and put it together as a soundtrack and then recompress it as, you know, AAC or whatever for your video, then you start can, can start to tell a difference. You don't need to be an audiophile to see to hear uh, the difference on a right. doubly compressed song, right, right? right, right. And triply compressed, it just gets worse. And it bothers me that music prices have stayed about uh, the same or, you know, depending on how you buy your things. I guess it's cheaper if you buy an individual track instead of an entire album. But the quality has basically gone down. CDs have better audio quality than these lossy compressed, uh, you know, AAC files that you can buy. So that's why I still buy CDs, in fact, because I buy them. I'm like, I'm getting a physical backup for free, basically, and I'm getting a higher quality product. So why in the world would I ever pay for a lossy compressed file from iTunes. And this is, you know, even with DRM being gone and everything. So everything else being equal. There's DRM, forget it. Uh, no way. But CDs, uh, uh, through a historical accident, have no DRM, and they happen to be better quality than what everyone else is selling. So that's what I still buy. Um, I'm sure they'll go away eventually, but I really hope... Kind of like the light bulb, right? Eventually they'll be gone. Yeah, all well, replaced with LEDs. Um, but I really hope uh, this industry gets back on that train and starts doing the, uh, you know... Saying, well, maybe we got one or two more standards in us, or maybe let's let's go let, let's stop with the compression because a certain point in network bandwidth is so massive that the compression is pointless anyway. And we'll just give you uncompressed, or we'll go for a higher bit rate or, or a higher resolution and still compress it, but it, but at uh, a lower level. I don't know. Um, that, that we could probably do a whole show on my insanity in that regard. We should really get a counterpoint <laughs> of someone saying, "You're nuts! If you, you just said you can't hear the difference, what do you care? What the right. quality what is? What do you care if the difference si- yeah. size is more important? We needed the MP3 revolution. Digital downloads are good and everything. I'm just sad that progress has seemingly been derailed, and I hope we get back on that train. Okay, uh, that, that one took a little too long. No, it's fine. Right. <laughs> um, backup related. Someone throughout this this uh, utility sent me an email about it after the right after the first backup show. And I never got to talk about it. Uh, smart utility, all caps, smart. Um, I think smart. I forget what it stands for. Self monitoring analysis, reporting, something or other. Anyway, smart is uh, a standard that lets the hard drive mechanism talk to your computer, and so you can query the hard drive mechanism and ask it questions about its health. And there are a couple of little things like menu bar widgets that have a little hard drive icon that just changes green when all your hard drives are okay and it changes red when they're bad smart is just basically a standardized way as far as i can tell a standardized way for the hard drive to tell you when it's really not working so it's, you don't it stands that. by the way for self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology i was close yeah all right um it's, it's a way to know that there's something wrong with your disk officially and not just find out like when your io start to fail in your operating system or something um and smart utility is uh a single app that shows all the smart information in this big display. Now, it's it's a little bit creepy in that the app has some heuristics built into it where it decides whether your hard drive is quote-unquote failing, which is a strange, you know, it's, in terms of the tense, it's strange failing. Does that mean it's failing now? <laughs> it's not failed. Failed smart will tell you, you know, XYZ is broken. That has failed, right? Failing, <laughs> I don't really know what that means. Um, so it's something just made up from this application where it says, if I see errors X, Y, and Z, even though everything is still currently working directly, I've decided that if I see these errors, it probably means that there'll be some other unrecoverable error in the future. Therefore, I'll tell you your drive is failing. And I mentioned that because when I ran it on my drives, it said one of my drives is quote unquote failing. But you go into the help and you Google around and it becomes clear that the notion of failing is really a sort of a judgment call. It may mean that your hard drive is about to go bad, but doesn't mean that your hard drive is currently bad. Uh, and the thing that it said about my hard drive is that I had uh, bad sectors that had been remapped. That That's part of what hard drives do. They remap bad sectors. Right. It's, in other words, it's not necessarily really going bad, but it's saying this could be an indication that there's a problem. Yeah, like there have been bad sectors that have been remapped on your drive. Now, does that mean that it's slowly dying? Or does that mean just it came out of manufacturing with some bad sectors, the mechanism remapped them, and then that's it? Um, so it has another mode where it will 
it will only complain to you if the number of bad sectors increases. So, like for instance, if you get the hard drive out of the box and it says 25 bad sectors and you use this hard drive for five years, and at the end of the five years, it still says 25 bad sectors. Uh, I don't know. And as some people in the chat room are saying, and as the, the help guide in Smart Utility itself says, uh, the statistics that uh, Google and other big uh, uh, companies that run big data centers have done have shown that if there are any sort of errors like this, even if everything's working fine now, it's a very good indication that things are going to go bad later. So if it happens, it happens. But the problem with this information is now I can't really return my drive to the manufacturer and say, hey, uh, Smart reports these errors. Uh, could you give me a new drive? Because they'll probably just send me back another drive with the same exact errors or send me back a refurb or give that drive to someone else because they want an error, a drive that has errors on it. You know, I'm sure they'll take my drive and then give me back another one, but who's to say whether that drive will have any other problems? So, and and just, so just so you know, if you're, li- I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this show, you're probably kind of geeky anyway, but this, this utility is not, I mean, I, I won't go so far as to say it's not for the faint of heart, but it's, it's, this is a geek utility. This is not something that that's made for like your mom to use to watch her hard drive. Right. It's not, it's not going to present you with any actionable information. It's just going to be a bunch of stats right. and maybe a big colored thing that tells you, you know, failed, failing, pass, fail. Like right. Like you'll, you'll see an attributes window for something called dev disk zero <laughs> and it'll have like power off retract count for the, you know, and, and it'll give you a raw value for that. So these things you need to have some kind of knowledge of what these things are to actually really make the the best use of this. But I mean, you know, you will get at, at the end of the day, you will see a little green light or a little, or, or a little green block or a, or a yellow block that's, it will say failing in it if you're running into trouble. So there is a little that. like menu bar icon called uh, smart monitor or something that all it does is put a, a, a an icon in your menu bar. And that just yeah. changes colors, green, good, red, bad. And I've run that for years and it always just says green. This utility goes further. Even if that little icon is green, this utility may be in the yellow quote unquote failing phase. Right. The funny thing about the app is that if you set the preference that says only tell me that I'm failing if one of these stats changes over time. Now, when I launch it, it says that my drive passed because this reallocated bad sectors thing has been the same for the life of this drive yeah. right so uh, and it's a pretty new drive this is a 1.5 terabyte western digital caviar black i think um and it's the main drive that i i run off of uh but i've got all my other backups so i figure i'll just let this one sail i i did increase the frequency of my super duper backups but we'll just see how we go i was gonna i was gonna ask you I mean, you know people are always asking what kind of hard drives you have and and all of that stuff and we've we've talked enough about drives on another show i think for for a little while when we were talking about backups but you know i think i think it's worth noting that there's a whole new generation of drives out there now if if the last time you bought a hard drive was even a couple of years ago things have changed a lot and if you're starting to see messages about your drive failing and it's not relatively new it pro- they're cheap enough. We'll just go buy a new one. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And especially drives get so much better all the time. It's all I can do to, to stop myself from buying a new hard drive every month because right. you, just, you know, they get cheaper, they get better capacity, they get better performance. Everything about them gets better. I just say, no, no, just wait for a drive to actually fail or wait for you to outgrow something to buy a new hard drive because they're so cheap. You see like a two terabyte drive for 80 bucks and you're like, man, yeah. that could be like my scrap drive off to the side where i just throw the junk you know but yeah for the for the for the main machine that we use for for doing our video recording and stuff i just picked up a terab one terabyte caviar black drive for 80 something dollars shipped yeah i mean it you know it's you just go go get a new drive and and those are good those are like the premium mechanisms yeah i'm buying the you know bargain basement (laughs) right (laughs) going to storage review finding their best rated you know desktop hard drive with great performance and good power consumption not too noisy and still 80 bucks so yeah you and noise we got to do a show just about you and and your noise uh, phobias yeah i don't think that would be a very interesting show but it would just be silence wouldn't it yeah that's right four (laughs) minutes 33 seconds of silence (laughs) exactly all right so uh today's show half halfway through the hour let's talk about today's topic uh yeah i guess so. i've got more follow-up but i'll say no it. you want to do it let's do it I, i've got wh- i've got more follow-up than we could possibly i could fill a whole show with this follow-up so i'll save it okay uh, well how about this if we if it. we get through today's topic to your satisfaction we can circle back so that'll never happen but okay <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So uh, the topic, Apple's hardware blind spots. This is a, a, a personal peeve of mine that I don't think is shared by... It, it's shared in bits and pieces by other people, but whenever I try to complain about it to somebody, maybe they'll agree on one of my points, but my 17 other points, they'll think I'm insane. So I think this concern is distributed through Apple's enthusiast community and just happens to be concentrated in me. Mm. Um, before, I go, before I go into the, the, the blind spots, I'll just talk about it's, it's obvious that Apple has lots of hardware strengths. And I think um, most Apple fans will be able to agree on all those and talk about them. What's good about Apple hardware? Well, yeah. it's high quality. It's not junk, right? So it's not plastic stuff that falls apart in your hands. It's always solid materials. It looks like somebody designed it. It doesn't look like it was slapped together by a committee. It looks like little pieces of art. Um, Apple's really good about innovative manufacturing techniques. You know, they're always trying to find a new and interesting way to build this stuff. They're not just happy like Dell. Has, Dell, for decades, was like, we build computers like this. We can do a stupid metal frame. We slap plastic on the outside. We put some colored panels on it, and we throw the internals in there. And they were just happy to do that for decades and decades. But Apple is not happy to do that. Apple did that you know, back in the 80s and 90s. And so how else can we make computers? And, and they... You know, worked with manufacturers to say, well, you can do this translucent plastic. Do you like that? But I still kind of got a metal frame in there. Can we do like the entire frame made out of clear plastic? Well, you get kind of hairline cracks, so that looks kind of gross. Well, how about can we make laptops out of titanium? Eh, kind of works, but the paint doesn't stick. And they're always looking for, you know, some <laughs> interesting ways to do things. And I would call this a strength. Even if it doesn't work out sometimes, they're trying new things. Um, uh, a great example is the unibody laptops. Like, that's the the creaking between panels and a big flat thing that you pick up. It's tough. That's a tough manufacturing challenge to make something that feels solid. So they said, why don't we just make it solid like a big unit body thing? And let's try, you know, machining out a, a solid block of aluminum into this particular shape. Maybe that'll be really strong and interesting. And, and that has advantages for the product uh, or the, the laser micro holes that they put on there, you know, and they have a, an LED light behind a sheet of aluminum, but they don't want to put a hole in the aluminum right. because that would too unsightly so they put these tiny little holes with a laser so you can't see anything there until the light comes on and you see light shining through right. what's like solid aluminum beautiful details uh, yeah uh and, and they look nice that's the thing most people will know apple's hardware looks nice you go into the apple store the store looks nice the hardware looks nice so it's clear apple has tons and tons of strengths and as usual with me if you're really good at something that's that's when I find the flaws more irritating because if you're just a total loss and you just make crap like Dell, then I'm not really interested in criticizing some particular thing you do because it's just not worth my time, right? But Apple, Apple's the first hardware to paraphrase Alan Kay that's good enough to criticize. Um, and the criticisms I've had at Apple's hardware, uh, the reason I call them blind spots is because they're persistent. Maybe they're endemic to, maybe they're part of the good stuff. I think a lot of them are, you know, a result of doing all the good things. But the, the things Apple does wrong have been the same pretty much for the entire Jobs 2 error when he you know, came back. And it doesn't look like they're getting better. In some ways, they're getting worse. So I've tried to break them down into categories so we don't just wander all over the place. Okay. Um, and the broadest category, I would have to say, is uh, when Apple does form over function. Uh, it's just an entire category of things where all those good things about making things look nice compromises the functionality purely okay. for, for aesthetics. Okay. Um, and I'm going to start in a weird place. I'm going to start with keyboards. Well, wait, do, do you want to share all of the different categories first, or do you just want to start, tell the category in the title? No, we don't have to do all the categories first. We'll just go through them in okay. order. All right. It'll, it'll surprise. Okay. Besides, we may not even get to all the categories. So. True enough. Um, so, keyboards with form over function. Now, there's a whole subgenre of keyboard cultism about the mechanisms and mechanical switches and buckling springs and, and different colors of switch mechanisms from different regions of manufacture. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's a whole other fetish. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about the most basic stuff about keyboards. Um, and I'll, I'll highlight uh, laptop keyboards uh, to begin with. The half-size keys. Mm. I don't think there's anyone out there who's going to say, I'd rather have half-size keys than full-size keys. Because you can get used to half-size keys. People can get good at doing them. But especially if you're an adult male and you got the sausage fingers, those little sausage fingers rubbing together on that little inverted T when you're trying to hit the up, down, left, right, especially if you're a programmer and constantly using arrow keys, maybe you're not into VI keys for the people out there who are going to say, no, nope, don't use the arrow keys. Anyway, <laughs> um, mode stink, long live you, Max. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the, little, the little arrow keys, the half-size arrow keys drive me nuts. And if you look at a laptop, an Apple laptop, especially a 15 or 17-inch, there's room for full-size arrow keys. Mm. If you look at any PC laptop, they have full-size arrow keys. Some PC laptops 
have page up and page down and end keys, home and end keys in a, in a particular arrangement, especially things that are the size of a battleship, like a 17-inch. <laughs> why doesn't any of Apple's laptops have full-size arrow keys? Well, I'll tell you why. Look at one of the laptops. If you put in a full-size inverted key, the keyboard would be asymmetrical, and that is not visually pleasing. So Johnny Ive or whoever's deciding how to make these things is just not going to let that fly. That's an example of they want the, the form to, to look like a beautiful, simple rectangle. It's probably the golden ratio for all I know. But they do not want that, you to have the functionality of the full-size arrow keys. That's a compromise they make, and they, they just haven't gone back on it. The very first review I ever did of Apple's uh, aluminum PowerBook series, when they were called PowerBooks, when right. they first had aluminum, before the unibody, they just made them out of aluminum, I put up a, a graphic that showed the 12-inch, 15-inch, and 17-inch laptops all next to each other, all the same scale, and you saw they all use exactly the same keyboard, which is great for manufacturing efficiency, and it's great for visual appearance. They all look exactly the same. It's all the same keyboard everywhere. But it's ridiculous to have this tiny little keyboard in the middle of a 17-inch battleship-sized uh, laptop. The whole point of having a 17-inch thing is you can have a big screen and give me a full-size keyboard. Give me full-size arrow keys. Give me home and an end key. It's, it drives me insane, and they just will not budge on that. If you look at every single laptop they've made since, the keyboards are the same. I, I, I imagine they get huge uh, economic benefits from having exactly the same keyboard and all these things, you know, not having different inventories, have, making the same part. They even use the same keyboards on their desktops now, for the most part, or the same key mechanisms. But it just frustrates me to no end. And, you know, the only reason I can come up with, besides the economics of having the same keyboard everywhere, uh, even on the desktop, is they just simply do not want to break that perfect rectangle. They don't want the, t- the look on their of their things to be asymmetrical. And that compromise, I feel like, is a bridge too far. For things looking nice um on, on laptop staying on laptops the other one that some people do complain about is the sharp edges you know the uh yeah when you've got when you've bodies. got your hand the natural way to sit in front of a laptop is you sort of have your your wrists resting and the edge is sharp yeah i'm just gonna say that you should not rest your wrists on anything while you are typing it's mm-hmm. very bad for you do that's not what everybody does don't, everyone don't does buy that. a wrist rest don't rest your wrist on things maybe you have no problem with it maybe it's the way you like to do things if you ever get rsi which is another show entirely that we should do i should add that to my topics list you will thank me for it but when you're not typing for example you can rest your wrist but either way just handling these devices they're devices that you put your hands on don't put sharp edges on them man like it, i'm not saying they have to all be round and cuddly and covered with fur <laughs> But don't make them razor sharp. Right, but it when looks, when the laptop is closed, it sure does look nice. It looks really nice. It looks great in product shots. It is amazing that they can manufacture something that's that, that's that wonderful. But don't make them that sharp. Like, seriously, think about that people are touching these things with their hands. That's kind of a new development. But in general, Apple has not been afraid to make things sharp. Even on my, my tower, the tower's got quote-unquote handles. Those things will cut your fingers off, man. These things weigh 50 pounds, and they want you to pick them up from these incredibly sharp aluminum handles. Ugh, yeah, the old the old G4 and G3 handles were quite I mean they didn't go so far as to have a motorcycle grip on them, but they were they were nice to to pick up. And they were light too. iMacs have a little bit of this problem more recently, uh, and they've done this on a bunch of their computers. They're supposedly friendly desktop computers, but they put everything in the back, all the ports in the back, the power button on the back. Yeah. That's, you know, they want it to look nice. Oh wait, so so you stare you stare at the front of I have an iMac right here. It's it's recording us right now, mm-hmm. and this is one of the aluminum body ones, and it it does have all the ports in the back, and there's a power button in the back. But that's great. I mean, I prefer that. You're saying you want the 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 buttons and stuff in the front of it. Not everything needs to be there, but. There's a common function of when you sit down in front of a computer that sometimes you just want to plug in a USB device for a second, right? And I know there's a port on the keyboard too, but it would be nice to acknowledge... Not have to get up and walk around to the back of the yeah, thing or, people, or twist it around. It's hard around. to reach behind there. And even just for the first... you know, the, the experience of people who turn their computers on and off or put them to sleep, especially since they removed the power button from the keyboard way back when, to reach around behind there and feel for that little power button thing... I know they want everything out of the way, but I, again, I think it's just a bridge too far of putting everything back there. Not having a single one in the front busy would mar the, the appearance or on the bottom or anywhere. And, you know, and even the keyboard one is hidden underneath there. It's not easy to get. I know they want the, the cable to look nice so you don't have the big USB thing sticking out of the end so they recess it, which is good on one side. But you know, I, I'm in the, in the form over function category, I'm getting down to the weaker arguments here. So on the iMac, it's not as bad as I think the keyboards are. 
but uh, it is indicative of the same trend of at a certain point they just cut off the functionality and say no form must be king here and i want my thing to be beautiful and clean and i don't care if you have to reach around behind the thing to find the port um so i guess i'm gonna move on to the next category so we can get through this uh durability durability is a uh i think most people recognize this a little bit that that, that you know when you have something that looks nice you trade off sometimes durability uh, because you can make something really durable, but then it looks like a big giant plastic thermos with rubber gaskets all over it, and it's not particularly nice. Um, and the, the thing that occurred to me a couple of years ago is, especially with Apple's handheld things, is it's kind of like Apple sells you only sort of the core of the device, like in a future world kind of right. anime thing. They'll sell you this amazing little metal core has all the functionality of the device, but of course they're just selling you the inside. And then you slip that little core into a case that you buy. And right. Apple doesn't. Apple sells a couple of cases, but you you know buy your own iPods. Everyone's iPods are look on the, on the you know, next time you're on the subway or something, look around and see how many people have their iPhones or iPods in cases. Unless it's like a Nano or a Shuffle, they're all in cases. Apple didn't sell you those cases for the most part. You don't see people with Apple branded cases. You see them with random green cases, pink cases, cases with stickers on them, homemade cases, all sorts of stuff. And it's kind of weird to me that Apple sells this entire line of products that you basically, it's not that you're not supposed to use them as is, but people people just don't. It, it would be kind of like if they sold you, remember the G4 Cube? Oh, yeah, I got and one right here. Could, got one right you know, here. You can pull the uh, bottom out of it yep. with a little handle and everything. Yep. It's like if they just sold you that little core and you'd have to slip it into something. <laughs> right, right? Get, build your own chassis. Yeah. And in some ways this is kind of appropriate because you can always add the case that you want, but if they sold it to you like more durable with the thing on the outside, you couldn't take that away. Like you couldn't take it apart. So you could say it's giving the most possible options. But if you if you don't if you want to use it without the case, then you can do it. But if they sold it to you with like a big rubberized thing all over it, you can't like peel that off. Or you know what I mean? Like it gives more options to sell it as just a little core and then you can add stuff to it if you want and, and they're working on it i give them credit for working on it especially with the portables like the glass iphone 4 despite the fact that people say it scratches and it shatters and all that stuff it's clear that they're recognizing the durability concerns of their previous ipods right. you know the plastic scratches and plastic cracks so i say let's find something that's more scratch resistant uh let's, let's put glass on it that seems to work on the front uh let's try it on the back well then we have to get super strong glass that resists bending so we got this gorilla glass <laughs> um and we have some problems with shattering, but it's clear that they're trying to work on that. But my big problem with them just selling this little core and this little not quite as durable as it should be core is that it also kind of trades form for function. This gets back to the previous topic of uh, my, my example is iPod touches. We have iPod touches all over the house and they all have that like shiny silver back, yeah, which looks really nice. But you cannot put one of these things on the arm of a sofa because it will slip off there like, you know, ice <laughs> on a hot griddle, right? <laughs> Even in your hand, like they are made to be like the slippery little things. Please drop your four hundred dollar piece of glass. Well, from... it's the same thing with the newer remote that comes with the newer Apple TV. It's the well, same of, same exact problem. It's made of metal, right? But yeah, yeah same thing. They don't have enough friction. There's not coefficient of static friction is insufficient on these on these devices. <laughs> so the main thing I want to do with every single iPod Touch I have is put a thin coating of silicone rubber all over all of them so they grip to any fabric thing. So then I can put it on an incline on on the couch and it will just stick there, right? But without that on it, it's just a slippery little lozenge. But the big problem with this is, like, isn't this working the way it's supposed to? Like you said, you can add a case if you want. If you don't want them, you don't have to. Uh, and Apple's doing the best thing. No, because every accessory that they sell and other people sell will not accept your thing if it has a case on it. Right. All these docks and everything, their docks won't accept it. So I can't use docks anywhere in my house because every single one of my iPods has some sort of case on it to make it so it's not a slippery little pill. But, you know, now you can't fit it into any docks. And even third-party docks, they just give up. They say, look, if you're going to wear a case, either take the thing in and out of a case, which is ridiculous, nobody does it, or just use the plug and hope that your case manufacturer was smart enough to leave room for the plug to fit in without you having to squish stuff out of the way. Um, so I think there's a ways to go there on, on, uh, the, on the durability front on the handhelds. They do seem to be sort of addressing it, but on the other hand, they just keep making shiny iPods. They just keep making, you know, slippery iPhones. It looks nice, but it's not the most durable thing in the world. And I feel like they're just leaving this as a quote-unquote third-party opportunity, which is Apple's kind of code word for FU. 
you know, you don't like it, fine. <laughs> Have some other company deal with it. We're not dealing with it. We never drop our stuff. Ours never scratches. We don't put sand in our pockets. All our couches are magnetic, so our devices stick to it. I don't know. So um, let's uh, let's let's say really quickly thanks to our f- uh, first sponsor, SourceBits.com. They make uh, amazing applications for iOS, Android, Mac, and the web. They're at the bleeding edge of emerging technologies. They have an awesome track record turning ideas into tangible and visually stunning applications for you, whatever your idea is. So you can contact them, and they'll, they'll get it done right the first time and save you a bunch of money. Sourcebits.com. Check them out. Thanks. Someone in the chat room uh, is asking if, these, if everything I'm complaining about are really problems compared to non-Apple products. And like I tried to say in the beginning, I'm not comparing Apple to other manufacturers. Other manufacturers are so beneath me, <laughs> beneath my concern, <laughs> because they're so awful. I'm comparing Apple to an ideal. Same thing Apple is comparing itself to. Apple is not competing against other manufacturers. It's competing against its own ideals and its own head of like, right, what's just, the best thing we can make. It, just because Apple's probably, you know, miles better than the other companies that are out there on the PC side, especially making hardware, that doesn't mean they, they can't improve things. And you mentioned docs. I mean, that's, that's the whole problem that people are always complaining about is that every time a new, new iPhone comes out, for example, you've got to throw away all the other docs that you've had for years and adjust up to the to the new one and for a while you would get manufacturers doing these weird little dock adapters that even though they supposedly had one for each version of the ipod or iphone that came out they never quite fit um you know and that's where we are now now that my wife and i are finally allowed to have allowed by verizon to have iphones again uh you know that that's the situation she's in she's like well a case do i have to get for this and can't we use the dock that we were using that worked perfectly for the ipad well no we can't use that dock because it doesn't exactly fit the iphone and now so do we get another dock do we get a case that you can take the bottom part off to put into the dock no we don't really want to have to do that or maybe we'll get that case anyway but then do you really want to be removing half of your case every time you want to charge it up yeah it is it is really a hassle I'm almost amazed that Apple did the uh, universal dock connector, you know, where they gave the little inserts. Yeah. That's, that seems like a very un-Apple-like solution because it isn't elegant and it doesn't look nice. But I guess at a certain point, people just get insane that they're buying these $30 glorified pieces of plastic <laughs> with metal connector in them. Yeah. The, the, I forgot about the cases where you take off the bottom. Talk about a way to damage your, your device. If you're going to slide something on and off it every day, everything's going to scratch. That's yeah, just, do, you, do you have a case? Do you, use, do you have an iPhone 4? I don't have an iPhone. That's another show, by the way. <laughs> no, no iPhones at all. But I do have lots of iPod. That's touches. a oh, that's a surprise. I, you should have known that about me. Yeah, we could do a show about that. Maybe we want. need just to do that show right now. <laughs> Why I don't have an iPhone? That'll derail it. That'll derail it entirely. Save it. Leave, that, leave that's at the top more. of my list right now. We got to talk about that next week. That's number right. one topic. Maybe we get to it if we zoom through the rest all of right. these. Um. Wow. Like, all of a sudden, it's like you think you know somebody. Like, you knew I didn't have an iPhone because I needed to be on Verizon. You knew that. I talked about it all the time. That's right. But you're, like, closeted. You're, like, closeted. I'm not closeted. Everyone who knows me knows this. I guess guess you're saying I don't really know you, and and that hurts. I think I I I mentioned it directly to you before, but you just don't listen. That hurts, too. Truth hurts. (laughs) Before I leave the durability topic, this is something... This whole durability thing is like an article that I've wanted to write forever but never wrote because it's just too whiny. So, but it works better in a podcast. <laughs> but like, I was going to write this, I guess, before the iPhone came out or whatever. But it's been on my mind for ages. This whole durability thing, and the thing about durability and size, size and durability are the like the two most powerful tools a maker of any kind of physical product has for encouraging fanatical loyalty rabid crazy person loyalty yeah and now maybe you don't want that maybe that's not important and certainly doesn't translate into sales but say you want to make something and you want to have this tiny little core of insane people who will never buy anything else who love your stuff so much make your thing incredibly durable or if it's something that you carry make it small and light uh with laptops it's particularly important small light and i'll give an example like Say, well, I don't know enough about either one of these products to be accurate, but pretend that I actually do and pretend this is actually true. The two examples I'm going to give are Snap-on and that name of that drill company that makes those really powerful drills that I can't remember. 
people who like those things are insane about them because they're just the highest quality and in, most indestructible things you could possibly imagine. In a, in a past life, John, when I was uh, a teenager, I used to work in an auto mechanic and I, one of the mechanics that I used to know, he didn't work there, but he, he worked elsewhere. And I, I was talking to him and he was a snap on guy and all his tools were snap. And like, like for people who don't know about this, like a, just a basic snap on screwdriver is going to cost, you know, 50 to a hundred bucks. And you'd say, that's crazy. And of course, this guy's got a whole tool chest full of these things. He's a lifelong mechanic, you know, from came from yeah. the, the Air Force or the, the Army and, and out of and been a mechanic his whole life. And this is all he would use. And I would say, well, the guys at the, you know, the place where I worked, they all have, uh, you know, they all just use a craftsman there. And if, you know, if those things break, they, they give you, you know, they give you a brand new one. What does a snap-on do? And he just looked at me and said, they don't break. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of more of a high-end type of thing than durability, but durability is factored into it. It's the same type of thing. Craftsman does have the guaranteed for life, but you'll break those things like crazy. I've yeah. broken Craftsman's tools. Um, but, but they are way more expensive. But I'm thinking more like in terms of laptops. Remember how like the PowerBook 100 had this crazy following? Yeah. Because, because it was small, right? Yeah, it was really like, small. Once you carry that as compared to the gigantic you know, <laughs> floor tiles that they had back then, it was just, you just become crazy loyal to it. And, and another example is like, I don't know, the Sony Walkman or any sort of like technology product. If you have one and you travel with it for like five years and the thing just keeps on ticking, not a single thing goes wrong. No connector breaks, you know, sand gets inside it, doesn't matter, water gets on it, you spill stomp on it, it's just indestructible. You become so insanely loyal, like especially <laughs> if that's a brand, whatever brand thing that is, you're like, I'm never buying another one of whatever these things are again unless it's blah. Durability makes people crazy. And now Apple's products are way, way, way on the bad side of durability, especially when it comes to preserving their original, like, beautiful appearance because they don't wear well. Um, Size-wise, Apple's doing pretty well. The Airs is getting some... People get a little bit crazy about them because once you carry an Air around, you're like, yes, this is the way it should always be. But durability-wise, <laughs> it's kind of like having a beautiful butterfly in your hand and you're like, oh, put it in a case and don't rub it on anything because... <laughs> They don't. They don't wear well. They're not like uh, 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 a guy who I read a lot of a blog from. What's his name? Koi Vin. I don't know how that's. You, that's you pronounce correct. His name. Yeah, Koi Vin. Uh, but he's got subtraction.com. He's yeah. got a blog post there from years ago that when I read, I'm like, yes, you are. You are one of my people. He was talking about how a cast iron pan, as you use it, becomes more beautiful. Like the aesthetic of a cast iron pan is not the way it looks when it's brand new from the factory, but the way it looks after it's been used for its intended purpose for many years, it becomes more beautiful. The article is entitled, uh, it, it, is, it is entitled Designed Deterioration, and it was written uh, on, uh, in July of 2007. Yes, that, and that, that really resonated with me because I feel the same way. And Apple, you may say, you can't do that. Like cast iron pan is, is going to look more beautiful as it gets used. And, and some people might say that an iPod that scratched to hell looks more beautiful, but... I think it's clearly not the intent of Apple that its devices look all scratched to hell. Otherwise, they would <laughs> otherwise they would picture them that way, right? Whereas the manufacturer of those cast iron pans is probably has some you know beauty shot of a cast iron pan that's a hundred years old that has been beat to hell, and they, that's their you know that's the aesthetic they're going for. They're saying buy our products that look like this eventually, isn't it awesome? So a- Apple's aesthetic seems to be counter to durability, and I feel like they're leaving a lot of uh, room here that they could. They could get the same fanatical loyalty they do now with like, you know, the design people who say, oh, look how beautiful it is in this beautiful lighting and everything and the perfect Photoshop mock-up. Like Apple's product shots look almost unreal. I mean, they must be untouched in some way, uh, retouched in some way. But that's, that's the look they're going for. N- never been touched by human hands, c- conceived in a vacuum, not a dust speck on it. And that's not how they look in real life. In real life, when you see somebody who's got a three-year-old MacBook, especially the plastic ones or whatever, they do not look good. Right. They don't wear well. Things, things crack. Things break. And Apple has the opportunity to say, look, take all that design expertise and manufacturing expertise and make something that really is indestructible and that wears well. Again, I think they're doing better with the, with the phones. I mean, they're having missteps with the glass stuff and everything, but they're thinking about it. You see, they're trying to do it. They just haven't gotten there yet. But on the laptops, they're like, it's a, it's a perfect uniform piece of aluminum. I guess it's kind of more scratch resistant than it used to be, but you use this thing for a while, the sharp edges are going to get dings, aluminum dents, it scratches easily, there's a big glass component to it. Uh, it's not great. Oh, did I? I think I missed one in the form of a function looking at my outline. Here. Speaking, of, speaking of laptops, I'll do a quick backtrack. This one always cracked me up. 
and I actually wrote about it in, in my original uh, review of the first aluminum uh, MacBook. And I'm sure everyone has noticed this uh, subconsciously, if not consciously, but Apple arranges the ports on the side of their laptops in size order. So if you have a Mac laptop now, turn it sideways. I'm, I'm going to look right now. They're, they're arranged in size order. They've always been arranged in size order. You know, the, the I, never, ones, I never paid any attention to that, but, but you're right. On the side of this one here, it's, you know, it's, it's Ethernet, USB, mini display port, and then the, uh, the audio jacks yeah. and the little lock. Kensington yeah. thing. They, get, they basically get smaller. The MagSafe actually threw it off a little bit because MagSafe got, was smaller than the old circle, but it used to be that they were strictly in size order. Now they're more or less from big and tall to, to small and thin. Um, and that looks nice, but don't you feel like when you're deciding what order the port should be on the side of your computer, maybe function should have a seat at the table? <laughs> it seems like saying, I don't care what you think is the most convenient one to have forward or back. I don't care if you think, you know, the USB should be in front of the headphone or the headphone should be behind the USB. For, you know, I don't care what your arguments are. We're doing it size order because that's what Johnny Ive wants. <laughs> and that bothers me. Yeah. It, it, it's neat in one regard, but in the other regard, like when you're trying to plug something in and things aren't the way you think they should be, like there's no arrangement that's going to please everybody, but I, I just want functionality to have a seat at that table. <laughs> I, want, I want someone to say, I don't care that the Ethernet port is bigger than the USB port. The USB port should be further back because when it's close up, it's annoying if you're mousing next to it. Or You know what I mean? Yeah, that's... I'm with you. Know. I'm with you. All right. Well, um, I don't understand. I still there's there's I have other issues with the ports in general, but that that could be a whole other show. In terms of uh, the uh, the durability of the them durability or of them, stuff in them, not having covers, not yes. having gaskets or anything. Yes, and 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 you know I, I've never seen a good implementation of covers. Uh, yeah. I've I've just, you know on PCs a lot of the time they'll have these sort of rubberized things, which is something Apple would never do. But the, but the idea that you have these ports that are literally just gaping holes for things to get in, especially if you have a three year old or something, I mean it just it it. it it seems like if anybody could come up with a better solution for this, that Apple would do it. Well, the solution, long-term solution to this, I think, and Apple would probably agree, is that connectors are all too big and fidgety to begin with. And as they get smaller and better, then this problem will start to go away and you can start to have some sort of reasonable rubber gasketing mechanism. Yeah. This, this segues into my next thing, which is my, perhaps my biggest complaint about recent Apple hardware. And I wouldn't call this a blind spot so much as another willful choice that I think is going to bite them in the butt. Uh, I bring this up and most people disagree with me, but we'll see how we go here. And it is the iPod dock connector, which I think is perhaps the worst (laughs) hardware technical design decision made by the Jobs 2 error Apple. Um, And no one seems to agree with me, but let me lay it out. Yeah, lay lay it out and maybe you'll, you'll win me on this one. So, so. Let me start off by just saying the obvious advantages of the dock connector. That's what everyone says. No, 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 you don't understand. A dock connector is genius. You know, it's it's proprietary, right? So you get ecosystem lock-in. So any any devices that you make that work with the iPod only work with the iPod because you know that's what the dock connector does. It only it doesn't work in any other iPods or music players or phones or anything. Right. And it and you can use the proprietary nature to enforce officially licensed materials. You know, where you if you want to get the design to work with iPod, then you got to pay a license fee to make anything with that dock connector on it. And if you don't make it officially licensed thing, Apple will screw you by putting a different size resistor in the next line of iPods so that your thing doesn't work with it. It will say, this this device is not designed to work with this peripheral. I don't know if you've ever seen that message, but I certainly have, and it pisses me off. But from Apple's perspective, it's an advantage. We've got a locked-in ecosystem with people making accessories only for us, and we can enforce you know, with lawyers that they don't make uh, you know, accessories without paying us some uh, you know, piece of money for everything that they sell. Or I don't know what the license fee is. Maybe it's a flat fee, but whatever it is, they're in control, and Apple loves control. Um, and the other thing people would say is the dock connector is that it's got lots of stuff on there. It's got analog video. It's got audio. It's got the USB stuff going there. It's got more power than yeah, it's the got, USB it's got standard. It's got 30 pins. Yeah. It's, and it's, got, it's pretty good, what it has. The, the other thing is that you can put more power over it than you can over a USB connector because it's not a USB thing technically, so you can you know overrun it. Uh, if you connect like you know those ones that have like a wall plug and yep. the other one dock connector yep. USB the USB standard is not involved anywhere in that connection so you can do things you can't do over USB um, but this connector this thing that they made flies in the face of what Apple of all companies should know having been around a long time that connectors in the computer industry are going in one direction for the entire life of the computer industry they're going from parallel to serial and pretty much almost never the reverse direction. It used to be every connector that connected to our computer had 800 pins, and it was, was you know, three inches wide and 
over time, the, the connectors got a little bit less wide, but mostly because they made the pins smaller, but then the pins were breaking, so they made little contacts instead of pins. And eventually, on the, on the PC, every one of these things that used to be a gigantic parallel thing with lots of wires going through it became serial, four wires, you know, power, send and receive. USB came and sort of swamped everything else. It's, a, it's just a serial connection. The wires are thinner, you know, everything else. Hard drives, SCSI cables used to be the size of my wrist. You couldn't even bend the freaking things. You know, good SCSI cables were just ridiculous. Mm. These huge, giant connectors. And they had, I don't know if you ever had the the pleasure of dealing with, I forget what the standard is called, but like micro SCSI, or those oh, ones yeah. that used to be on the back of the sun yeah, machines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, eight, eight bazillion pins in like a one-inch area. Yeah, those were, those were really tough. And God forbid, you know, you're, you're putting them in, you get that crunch sound. Yeah, yeah. And and the worst part of it was that those cables, because there were so many wires in them, the cables were super, super thick. But then yeah. they'd have this relatively weak little <laughs> connection point. And if, if, you, if you were behind there and you would just bump one, you'd hear that sound. And you'd know yeah. something terrible just happened. You'd be afraid that the weight of the cables was going to yeah. snap off the connector. And sometime. it could. Yeah, it, and like that was the bad old days, and now we have serial attached SCSI. Firewire is a serial standard replacing SCSI, right. trying to SCSI back in the day. Everything is going from parallel to serial, and the reason is obvious: lots and lots of wires is a pain in the butt. That means lots of connectors, and the connectors have to be small, and there's lots of room for stuff to go wrong. That little crunch that you hear, that little crunch sound, that should be familiar to people who are palm users from the old days or anyone who's dealt with SCSI and everything. That's not a good sound. That's the sound of a lack of durability. That's a sound of fragility. And on top of that, the other reason you get rid of parallel things is because they're wide. They limit the size of the device you can plug them into. The current iPod dock connector is bigger than the iPod shuffles. That's why they got to do that stupid headphone thing. They can't even use their proprietary <laughs> connector on their little devices. For a while, they had the, you know, the actual USB port on, on the iPod shuffle, which was nice. But then they said, no, we can do it all through the headphone jack. But then you got to have a stupid adapter that has a headphone jack on one end and a USB thing on the other or the stupid little dock it's just not good stuff. Uh, and it seems, it seems like obvious, like it's not like they made the standard in 1982 when everyone was parallel. They made it after all this stuff had gone serial after half, you know, they brought about, you know, the USB revolution on the desktop sort of by being the first ones to say, no, no parallel connections, just USB with the iMac. Right. And they're the ones who were championing firewire for, you know, it didn't quite work out the way they wanted, but they were saying, let's not use SCSI. Let's use firewire. It's serial, tiny little cables, uh, you know, and, and the thing is, they really used to know connectors. When they made the FireWire connector, uh, they copied the, the Game Boy connector. I don't know if you remember this, but the, you remember uh, the original Game Boy? Yes. It had a, had a link connector. Yes. It could connect to the other, someone else's right. Game Boy. Right, and it was, it was smaller than the 30-pin the connector that we have, but it was, it was very similar now that you mention it. It was similar to the FireWire connector. Yeah. Apple said, well, here, Nintendo had done a lot of the legwork here to make a connector that's obviously safe enough for kids to use. Plug, unplug, plug, unplug constantly, and it won't break, and it's durable, and it's a serial connection. Let's make the FireWire connector, you know, in the spirit of that. I don't know if it was based on it patent-wise or whatever. It's certainly not compatible, but they look very similar. Um, and the story was that they were inspired by that connector. So they understood durability, serial connectors, plug, unplug really easily lots of times. None of those things apply to the iPod dock connector. It is not durable. You do not want to plug it and unplug it lots of times. It's very fidgety. They, they got rid of the little, uh, remember back in the day, they used to have the little buttons you would push on the side of the iPod dock connector? Yeah. To disengage the little hooks. Right, yeah. We still have some of those. Yeah, that, they, they very quickly decided that was beyond the ability of most people to deal with. Well, I always thought that it was because at, at, during that time period, you could not safely remove an iPod with or without first ejecting it. And I remember, at least in my mind, maybe I've got this wrong, but it seemed like they changed that, the, the hooks, they removed the hooks and the little pinch thing from it at the same time that the iPhone came out because they knew the iPhone, nobody was going was gonna to do that. But at the same time, the iPhone was like a smarter device and it, it could be unplugged. And that sort of ushered in the era of you sync and then as soon as the sync is done the iPod or device will say it is safe to remove as opposed yeah, think, to having to eject manually. But maybe I've got my timeline wrong, but I feel I like think it is. the timelines do line up, but I'm not sure it was cause and effect okay. because the iPod touch has the same thing. But for example, right now the shuffles, you can't unplug. You must manually eject. They don't have dock connectors. Right, right. It, it mostly comes down to a software thing where they went from whitelist to blacklist. Now it's blacklist <laughs> on, on the, on the big iPod touches and iPhones. It's blacklist. When we say this, you can't pull it out, but every other time you can. And that was a good move. 
but with the shuffles, it's still whitelist. You know, manually eject the thing before you can uh, before you can pull it out. But but either way, like that's more of a software issue because you know you can't yank out a FireWire hard drive when you're in the middle of using it either. It's not some. That's just a question of what kind of guarantees do you have about uh, you know data that's in flight and stuff like that. You can go either way on that. The connector itself is just the uh, uh, the problem here. Yeah. And so. I feel like the ship is gonna the the, the ship is gonna sail. No, what's the what's the expression? The chickens are gonna come home to roost on the iPod dock <laughs> connector sooner rather than later. You know, at a certain point, they're gonna make an iPhone or an iPod Touch that's too thin for them to put the dock connector in. They're already getting close. If you yeah. look at the bottom so of the what, current, you know, so you're saying they'll have to move to something else like mini USB? Yeah. Well, that's what I was saying before about the size of the laptops. I think Apple will not jump until the standards start to catch up with them. And it may be the one that that's currently a pipe dream for Apple is probably Lightpeak, Intel's fiber optic thing, where, as you can imagine, you can make a fiber optic connector really, really small, yeah. and it's so fast that you can get away with just a tiny little thing. And you say, well, how do you, you can't charge over Lightpeak, you can't do this. You know, maybe Apple comes up with another proprietary connector. It's not so much the proprietary nature of the dock connector that's bad, although that is bad, but... The, the fact that it's a humongous, wide, crunchy thing with 30 pins on it. They need to come up with a serial interface. The other thing is that parallel interfaces allow you to have fewer chips on the end decoding the stuff because you can just route the stuff directly through to, you know, uh, like a video signal can go directly out the pins and everything. There's lots of advantages to the 30-pin. Um, but I think disadvantages are very, very quickly starting to outweigh it, and they really need a better... Uh, connector than that, preferably a serial one. Now that they have maybe room in there for for a fast serial interface to to deal with the data, router. It's kind of like what you were talking about on, on the the show right before this about the cell phone network uh, going to entirely data, where L, voice over LTE uh, instead of having a voice network and a data network, combine them, make one bill, yeah. put your voice over over the data network. It's a stupid historical distinction that's obviously going to go away. So let's just do it, right? Also, same thing with all the other th- all the other interfaces that come through that dock connector, with the exception of power, which you can't kind of get around. Every other thing that used to be on a separate pin, turn it into a protocol that you send over the really, really fast serial connection and make some sort of hardware and software to decode it. It's where you're going to go eventually anyway. It's where all these interfaces are going to go. Do it sooner rather than later before you can't plug that stupid thing into your iPods anymore or your iPhones. Not bad, 102. No, it's not bad. We can keep going because we started a little late. What else do you get to say? Well, you know, when you were talking about when you were talking about older hardware and loyalty, not necessarily durability. Another one of those machines that that people just loved was the PowerBook G4. The twelve inch, you mean? Yeah, the twelve inch. Yeah, that that, that was that was a, a size thing where they felt like, yes, how small can you make a laptop? Well, let's just shove the edges in until the keyboard is practically right. hanging off the edges, and 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 it was pretty solid. Like when you closed the lid on the twelve-inch PowerBook and you picked it up, it felt solid. Not as solid as the Unibodies because the Unibodies did trumpet, but that's you know a decade later. But yeah, the twelve-inch did have that kind of loyalty. That's laptops are like that. Durability and size and weight breeds loyalty but if you can make your brand and this is this is something that apple has not done their brand is not synonymous with durability it's synonymous with lots of other good things and maybe they can't have those other good things at the same time as they have durability but as apple's business transitions to more and more devices that you hold in your hand i I feel like transitioning the the image of your company to be the company that makes that indestructible stuff is maybe beneficial Mm. instead of just the company that makes that attractive stuff or that beautiful stuff it's good to have beautiful things but Durability and I and again to their credit, I think especially with the iPhones and stuff, they're trying to go in that direction. They're just not, you know, they're having missteps. I'm not quite sure what you can do. That's why I'm thinking like the iPhone five or six. Assuming that the next iPhone is really actually the iPhone 4s and it's just the you know unified model across all things with the faster CPU and more RAM or whatever. The next form factor for an iPhone, maybe not this year, maybe next year. I would love to see it be some kind of metal on the back. Um, it it Some does kind of need to be, it does need to be metal. Is that why you haven't gotten an iPhone? No, that is not why. Do you okay. want do you want to talk about that now? You got you got another show to do, but I can I talk do about have it. another show. You know what? I mean, it's such a great topic. I don't want to rush it. I want to I want to I want to feel like we have the open road in front of us when we talk about that one. Well, that's kind of insular topic. Like, who cares why I don't have an iPhone? No, I think people do <laughs> care. Not, I, I in, in I don't, fact, I don't in, think I don't think it's a well. All right. How about can, this? No, you know what? Maybe you've got a point. So how about this? If you're interested in hearing why John Syracuse does not have a, a an iPhone, write us. Let us know. If if we don't get enough responses, we won't do it. 
Yeah, we got plenty of other topics of, of wider applicability, I feel like. We want to also say thanks to MailChimp.com. Uh, it's our second sponsor. They make it really easy to design email newsletters, share them on social networks, and integrate with web services that you already use. You'll love mixing and matching MailChimp's templates, features, and integrations to fit your needs. Think of it as your own personal newsletter publishing platform. And they've doubled their free plan again. 12,000 emails a month, 2,000 subscribers. It's free. So there's never really been a better time to join MailChimp.com. And uh, visiting them and SourceBits.com will show your support for this show, just like buying a shirt. Did you buy any of the shirts? I'm waiting for you to send me my I'll free send them. shirts. You get them all. You keep you talking about the free shirts. Like I said, there's still no shirt for my show, so I'm just I'm well. We're, that that's going to be in the next round. But after this weekend, the shirt the store shuts down again until we do the other shirts. So you, this is your last chance to buy them. Store TV. If you want, if Dan is not sending you free shirts, go buy one. Yeah, and I'm really only sending you and the other co-hosts the free shirts. So that so would be yeah. everybody listening that to this show, yeah. except John Gruber and Marco. So you're not going to New Zealand next week. I'm not. I'm not a traveler. I Neither don't travel. am I. How often do you go do you go anywhere? Do you travel? We have that although we have that in common, the the uh, travel phobia, but the listening to what was that last show that you were doing? I think it was the last one with Merlin. I think you've got me beat on the neuroses area in in a couple of ways. But uh I doubt it. On travel we're probably a tie. Oh, you have you have you have the O C D thing. Was where you said you were checking at the front door? I don't have see your your uh, thing is starting to plug out. You're gonna unplug and replug really quick. We're gonna leave this in. Are you back? Yep. Yeah. No. I I don't I don't have that. I I, I have had that when I was you younger. You have that. Wow. When in a high before I was uh, before I was a meditator, I used to have issues with OCD and things. Oh, but so it was it was saying. never it was never a paralyzing OCD. It was never like. Like I'd be halfway to work and I'd have to slam on the brakes and drive back home to like check the the iron in the closet wasn't you know wasn't on or high heating up or something. It wasn't like I thought I shut my neighbor's cat in my refrigerator and I had to keep checking it over and over again like I I saw a guy doing on a show. It'd be like I'd check the door and then I better go check it again, and that was it. I mean, it wasn't you know wasn't debilitating. Well, I don't know. It, I I still feel like my particular neuroses have not intruded into my life to that degree. But you're over that now. But travel, we can both agree on. I I don't travel well. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't. You don't travel at all. So like, if if uh, you're you're. I just said I don't travel well. I I feel like with all my neuroses, the rational part of my mind is still dominant. Yeah. And so I have a better understanding of them, but the travel thing it, it has a rational foundation in that I get massively motion sick. Do you really? See, I don't get motion sick at all. I'm I'm perfectly at home in, in, in anything. Like we went uh, one time to South Korea, mm-hmm. and uh, most I mean, you know, I'm going to get email, but most Koreans, it seems, from my observation, that, that <laughs> yeah, this is going somewhere good. Go ahead. Yeah, most Koreans <laughs> seem to seem to get seasick pretty easily. So my uh, my my wife and her whole family, we all went on this little uh, this little this some kind of I don't know where we were in, near Pusan or something, and we went to this thing where they take you out on this boat, and the water is very rough. They take you out on this boat, and you're on the boat for all of about six minutes, and they take you out to this other thing. It's like an island where you can like go and you know drink the mountain water or whatever. I don't know. So you you basically you, you take this little boat. Oh, everybody was see. Everybody on this boat was seasick except me and the captain. You're the lucky one. It's great. I love it. I did. I. I'm not sure how I would do. Like a, a friend of mine went on this. He went sailing, and uh, and and like was doing one of these things where you sail literally around the world on like a sailboat with like six other people. And he's been sailing his whole life, and he yep. was he was seasick on this thing a yeah. lot. That's the thing that people don't understand. That the two things about motion sickness is one, they think it's a character flaw, and that like it's 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 reflective of your character. And it's not a physiological thing. And the second thing is they think that they don't get motion sick. There's, I have a news flash for anybody with a functioning inner ear gets motion sick. Everybody what, is that like where you where you if you're sitting in the back seat and you're reading and then you, I can't read in cars. Yeah, you start to get sick. Yeah, uh, the best example I've seen. I, astronauts used to be the one I would give. Astronauts are jet fighter pilots. Astronauts and jet fighter pilots get motion sick. Right to the point of throwing up. But the best one I've seen recently, which more people, which resonates with more people, is that the people on Deadliest Catch, the people on those boats, yeah, they get motion sick. They puke on the first day that they go out. 
every single time. This is what but I do for what did you just get used to it over time? Well, yeah, you know, is getting your sea legs as they call. It. Obviously, yeah. every people are susceptible to different degrees. I'm ridiculously susceptible to it. Right? But some people, you'd have to put them on the North Atlantic in one of those deadliest catch boats to get them to puke, or you'd have to put them into a, a jet plane of seven Gs for the very first time in their lives to get them to puke. But you can drive, right? Yeah, driving is not a problem. We could do a whole show on motion sickness. Let's do that one too. It's a disgusting topic, but I have. No, a lot let's of do. It. We'll do. We'll do a show called "How to How to Deal with OCD and Conquer It." <laughs> as long as it's you know mild and not debilitating, and uh, the effects of motion sickness on uh, college educated uh, and, Massachusetts. And don't don't bring the RSI show. So many health problems. We can yeah, cover. we'll just do a show called uh, "Health and Mental Disorders." That'll be our next episode next that's week. For, that's for you and Merlin to do. That's your whole show with them. Mental disorders. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Mental disorders with Merlin Man. That right, was the last well, episode, practically. That was. Well, we're going to wrap this up because I have to go start that one. We're doing a makeup episode. So thanks, everybody, for, for tuning in. Uh, thanks to the sponsors. And uh, always, John, thanks to you. Yep. They can follow you at Syracusa on Twitter and follow me at Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.